0: Welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio, exploring the frontiers of spirituality, consciousness, the esoteric, and humanity's sacred relationship with the living earth. Greetings, I'm your host, Nick Mather, and in this episode, I speak with Lee Adams, author of A Visionary Guide to Lucid Dreaming. In our conversation, not only do Lee and I discuss lucid dreaming, but we also talk about dialoguing with your dreams symbolism and synchronicity, shamanism and shadow work, and the phenomena of sleep paralysis. At one point, you will also hear a very disgruntled kitty in the background protesting his unjust imprisonment inside the house. Sorry about that. I'm joined today by Lee Adams, author of the recently released book, A Visionary Guide to Lucid Dreaming. Lee has been actively researching, practicing, and teaching lucid dreaming for over 20 years. He is also the host of the Cosmic Echo podcast and is a sleep and dream coach. Uh, Lee has a BA in psychology and is currently pursuing a doctoral degree at the Pacific uh, Graduate Institute. So welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio, Lee. Thanks, thanks for having me. And of course, uh, the pleasure is mine. I am <laughs> so very much looking forward to this conversation. So, uh, let me first ask, is there anything I missed uh, in your introduction or anything that uh, needs correcting?
1: No, I think yeah, I think that pretty <laughs> much sums me up. No, yeah. <laughs> okay, awesome. Just like anybody, there's a long history behind, you know, who the person is, but uh, those yeah. are pretty good key points there. Yep.
0: Okay, awesome. So um, I I wanted to first congratulate you on your book. Uh, You know, I I began exploring lucid dreaming probably about 25 years ago. I read the uh, LaBerge books. I still have a paperback copy of his lucid dreaming, which my understanding is that is now a rarity. Oh, Uh, Hmm. uh, at least that's where I read somewhere recently but it, it all kind of fell to the wayside for me. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but I, as I explained to you, uh, in, a uh, private conversation, I had done a little bit of research on Tibetan dream yoga that also kind of fell to the wayside. So your book kind of reawakened my interest in lucid dreaming. So I'm very grateful for that. And I think it's a very <laughs> accessible book too. So uh, I just wanted to uh, compliment you on that. Oh, thanks. It's worth worth reading. And I hope people go out and buy the book. Uh, Let me ask you uh, kind of a two-point question here. Uh, One is, I think most people are kind of familiar with lucid dreaming, uh, but I want to know how you define lucid dreaming and what led you to begin investigating all of this?
1: Yeah, so lucid dreaming to me, is essentially having some form of awareness or at least perceived idea that you have awareness in a dream state so Mm -hmm. you you could be having a normal dream let's say and then suddenly you see something out of the ordinary and you go wow i'm 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 dreaming or um you could not actually fall asleep let's say you have conscious awareness all the way through and then you become you're in a dream state and you're uh, aware that you're actually dreaming So a lot of people kind of uh, segregate that idea of having awareness in a, in a dream state into multiple categories, like out-of-body experiences, and they call it astral projection, things like that. What I do is I kind of put it all into one thing. Like uh, if you're having a out-of-body experience, you have some form of awareness that you're in a dream state and that you're out of your body so in that sense i i call that lucid dreaming as well and the same thing with this really hard defined thing that people call astral projection i include that into lucid dreaming as well so that there's like really no confusion as to what is going on you have some type of awareness so that's what i define it as and i spent a lot of time to really kind of get that definition set for myself to say Okay, you know, I I can't really define all these other experiences that people have. And there's so much debate online about and through books that you can read about like what an out-of-body experience is, what an astral projection is, how is that different from lucid dreaming or each other or whatever. So um, you know, to make it simple, I just put it all into one thing. And in my book, I do discuss like these different experiences that I've had that are what I would classify as out of body experiences or astral projection. But again, you know, I call it lucid dreaming and kind of that sums it up. But really, I got interested in lucid dreaming because I had lucid dreams as a kid Mm -hmm. and I didn't really understand or have anybody to relate to really with these experiences that I I was having. So like anything that's different than, say, the average person that you have, you know, a unique ability, you could call it or something like that, you know, it tends to stick out. In your in your consciousness so if i was a mar- like really good at running marathons which i'm not you know or something like that maybe people would uh, support me to be olympian or something like that you know and so there's not a lot of support for dream uh, enthusiasts uh, but it's definitely sticks out there in the people that have those experiences so that was the inspiration to say oh what is this you know i would talk to friends and family about my experiences. And they, for the, you know, most part, they didn't understand what I was even talking about. And so that made me really interested in it. You know, uh, I'm not getting the answers that I want from people that I identify as having knowledge. And, and so, you know, it took, I took it upon myself to really dive deep into it. And then uh, throughout my life, you know, I've, I've done a lot of what you have. I've kind of put it on the wayside, you know, put it, put it to the side of me and continued on with normal life. I was in the military for 14 years. And so that's not a, exactly a, a great environment for dream induction, you know, and, and, and all that and explore those topics. So I did try my hardest at times to kind of push my dreams and this whole spiritual, you know, uh, exploration or metaphysical expo- exploration, or even fl- philosophical expo- uh, exploration aside and try to, Continue forward with a normal job, and, um, but you know, every time I did that, I would notice that this almost energy would pop up, you know, into my life, and and dreams would become very present and very active, and and say, hey, you know, like, hey, we're still here, you know, mm-hmm. and and kind of shock me. So, and also, kind of a dis, uh, like a, a feeling of not being fulfilled, you know, would pop up too. It's like, I'm kind of putting my, this special thing, this gift, I think in a way uh, aside, trying to be normal when really like, you know, I should, I, I maybe should embrace my strangeness, my, my abnormal things and really kind of figure and explore that. So it kind of, you know, it, it brought me back to uh, exploring these, these topics. And it, it changed my life, you know, like, uh, it changed my career path and my goals in life and really dreams kind of encompassed everything. Eventually, you know, they kind of took over everything for me. So yeah, it's kind of where it brought me to here, I guess.
0: Okay, great. I, I'm, I'm just curious. I, I, I have to ask <laughs> this question. Um, what, what branch of the military were you in?
1: Oh, I was, I was in the Navy, which is, you know, it's important too, because you know, there's a lot of symbols and, references to the Navy that are dreamlike, you know, and sailors and stuff can be uh, superstitious and all that. So, um, and I was, uh, I was in Idaho when I joined the Navy. So it's kind of bizarre that a landlocked uh, person would really <laughs> have a desire to join the Navy, you know, of all yeah. things. And I wanted to fly airplanes. Okay. And that was primarily the reason that I joined the the Navy is because they have a lot of aircraft and it was an easy way to do that. And, you know, and I look back to why I really wanted to fly, you know, and, and I kind of actually attribute that to dream experiences, mm-hmm. um, the, the ability, the freedom of feeling that loss of gravity, you know, that people feel in a, in a lucid dream state that they can have, they can experience and, and the freedom that you feel from that, you know, like the, the, this loss and just float, you're like, uh, you know, it's like being a cloud almost, you know, mm-hmm. and, And so when I experienced that in waking life too, I was, I realized, you know, I really like that, but I didn't really understand why I liked that, you know, until, and I still really don't understand it fully, but I realized that it's more related to my dream experiences than I really ever thought before. Hmm. And so in a long way of saying, I would say that dreams inspired me to actually join the military. I just didn't realize that. So Right,
0: right. Well, isn't one way to interpret the ocean symbolically is as like the depths of the unconscious?
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, sailors are often terrified of the ocean, right? Right. And and they also name their boats, you know, feminine Mm -hmm. um, things, and they and it's a barrier; it keeps them out of the water. And it's so strange that like a group of people that are terrified of getting in the water for the most part would want to be on the water, you know, close, but far away, you know? And so there's definitely some relationship to that in my life too, you know, just being scared of like what's in the water, what's underneath. I was always terrified of sharks. And, uh, one of the, on the day that I was going to leave to the Navy, we actually watched, um, a movie that was about it was a real life experience that sailors went through essentially their ship got sunk by a, uh, a submarine and then they were left out in the ocean and eaten by sharks wow. and it was absolutely <laughs> terr- terrifying and i was like whoa what is going on here you know and my mom's like do you want us to change the channel and i was like no it's fine but you know it, it's like oh wh- what why why did that movie get played you know at that right time when i was joining like right. it was just some random show on tv and then um, this relationship to sharks and the w- relationship to the the unknown underneath the water and stuff. I'm really in this symbolism as you yeah, are. So, yeah. Um, yeah.
0: yeah. It's uh, kind of making me think that, you know, that would actually, I don't know if anyone's ever done this, but that would be a fascinating study to look at the symbolism of sailing and, you know, the Navy and whatnot. Cause I'm thinking of you know the old maps you know where you have the oceans you know the yeah. sea monsters coming up and yeah. everything that's like yeah that's a very highly charged symbolic language right there. yes
1: yeah and the navy is full of uh, ritual and mm-hmm. symbols you yeah. know the rank structure as well as like they essentially every single ship even in modern day takes time like an entire day to have a ritual out in the middle of the ocean when they cross Mm -hmm. the line. And, and it's, you know, it's very expensive to do something like that. And it's also, you know, puts it's vulnerable. You're vulnerable when you do that and things like that. It's not very military like to do something like that, Mm -hmm. but every single ship does it, you know, they still honor the ocean and the gods of the ocean. There's like Poseidon and all that stuff, you know? So most people don't know that, but they do. So
0: let me ask why, lucid dream
1: yeah well um that's a great question why why do i have these experiences and some other people don't or why are some people uh, pulled to have these you know desires mm-hmm. to have these experiences and some people don't like uh you know my, my mom asked me the same thing she's like well why would why would somebody want to have this experience you know my mom's known me all my life and mm-hmm. it's kind of interesting like she know, I I gave her my book and she's like, what is lucid dreaming? You know, it's like, mom, do you know who I am? Like, this is my, like life's work, you know? And she's like, well, why would somebody want to have this experience? You know? And it's like, well, why not? You know, like, of course, but it's a, it's an interesting thing. I don't really understand what, pulls some people's desires to do things and other people don't, you know, and it's also an interesting thing to explore in any situation. And I find myself asking that question more and more, even uh, things that I'm, things that I'm interested today. So like, I'm interested in flight simulators, you know? Uh, so it's like, well, why am I so interested in this? You know, why am I doing this? And so uh, it's an interesting way of seeing things versus like, most people identify things they're interested in they say oh i'm i'm doing this because i like it you know mm-hmm. they're like it's fun right they and that's kind of like a cop out you know it's like oh it's fun that's why i'm mm-hmm. doing it mm-hmm. well why is it fun to you you know well, and then you keep asking that question and you start realizing that these things are a lot more complicated than you really initially thought and even in my first chapter of my book the question is asked like why do you want to have this experience and really like the the question is asked in hopes that you don't have a an answer you know because it's kind of like the isn't it, i i think it's socratic method right you keep asking questions until you get pissed off essentially and they kill you right <laughs> so it's kind of the same thing it's like keep asking yourself this this question of why and it will lead you in a way that you never really expected you know mm-hmm. and that was kind of my goal with that question is because it's really complicated why people want to have these experiences. And it and, and oddly enough, it becomes unconscious at a point. You really don't know why you're doing this. Something is driving you to do this thing. Anything in your life essentially is unconscious at some point. And you're like, I don't know why I'm doing this, but it seems really important. And I hopefully am doing the best job I can to engage with it the way that I should right so um or i desire i guess so for me why am i why am i so attracted to lucid dreaming well i would say i attribute lucid dreaming and those experiences to a very spiritual experience and path and it's to know myself right in a in a a way that i possibly couldn't understand fully externally i think Um, i'm an introvert so i find meaning from internal things versus external things And so a a desire to go into myself and really explore those topics is very progressive for me. It it makes me understand myself better. It makes me understand the world, the external world better even um, by understanding complexity of how really complex things are and how wild things can get. Right. Yeah, for sure.
0: Yeah. And that, you know, like you just said, there's so much there that I kind of want to address. <laughs> I think that the place I'll start is with this kind of self-examination. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why I pay attention to my dreams. I have found it incredibly helpful going through my life. Yet there seems to be, and I don't, quite understand why this is the case but there seems to be this at least from our culture uh this i don't think applies to all cultures but this belittling of dreams Mm. that they are really just you know garbage in garbage out and they don't have much to tell us but yet our culture and all cultures, you know, even just looking at Western culture, dreams are, have always been very important. You know, we look at the biblical texts, especially, you know, the Hebrew Bible Old Testament there, you know, Jacob has this dream at Bethel of the angels going up and down the ladder. And Joseph is interpreting dreams for the Pharaoh. Am I stereotyping our culture? Do you think (laughs) that people don't take dreams seriously? I'll just start there. <laughs> yeah, that's
1: a great uh, question. I think absolutely people discredit their dreams uh, as a useful tool that they can use during the day. And I think our culture, you know, the, the Western culture, has infected the entire world with modernism. And essentially, modernism and symbolic uh, understanding and knowledge through symbols is complete opposition of each other so the you can be scientific about those things but you really don't get to the the, the meat of the material if you're analyzing everything and through the scientific method you you're quantifying things right and some things really aren't meant to really be quantified because they lose their use say you have a you know i use the conversation analogy if i'm having a conversation with you and i'm sitting there writing down how many words you said you know like ums or thes or whatever i'm really being completely disrespectful to the relationship that you and i are trying to build with each other and so you know if you're doing that with your dreams you're kind of disrespecting the conversation that you're trying to have with yourself or you know with your dreams and so it's not really progressive in the dream space to be of a analytical mind, you know, like to be sitting there and saying, dissecting everything and putting it in little boxes, you know, so you can make sense of it. It's sometimes, you know, it's not, it would be more beneficial to have a conversation and to, to learn that way. And people generally, I think, don't really understand the concept of symbols and how dream symbols, you know, what they really represent. And a good example, I think of this is again, the conversation you and I are having, like you're a, you're a human being, you know, I see you in such a way based on our previous conversation or emails, things like that. So I, I have this idea of who you really are, you know, at least an idea of who you are to me and you represent the symbol of Nick, right. But I don't really know Nick, like. You know, I don't know Nick from childhood, every second of his life, all the way up to being who you are today. Right. But I have a little background. So my mind generates like a symbol of who you are and I can interact with that and I can communicate with that. But that only goes so far. You know, the real knowledge that I'm going to get is in having a conversation with you. Right. But the symbol is good enough that you and i can have a conversation now right it's like the the conversation starter in a way right and so dream symbols are the same way they they represent things that are much more complex than really, really we can ever get to but they're conversation starters they're the bridge so you can actually communicate to you could call it the unconscious right or subconscious and so on so that's kind of what dreams are doing but if you told somebody, you know, that if they're a scientist, you know, you're like, oh, you know, symbols are conversation starters. You know, they'd be like, what does that even mean? You know, like you can't really quantify that very well. So I think the, you know, the the very physical realness of reality and studying that and exploring the usefulness of things in that kind of are in opposition of this this other way of learning. This other way of having knowledge, and you know, researchers have attributed that to like left, uh, left brain, right brain dominance in cultures, right? And we're very right brain dominant culture as well as the majority of the world today, because our goal is to max maximize the efficiency that we have while we're awake, and demonize anything that is anything that we're asleep. The negative outcome of that is creativity. And self-expression kind of goes out the window, you know, over time. And then the culture, the effectiveness of the material, right. Production eventually goes down. Even the military understands this because they encourage people to, they try to encourage people to be creative, um, especially like strategics and stuff like that. Right. Because if you just do the standard strategy each time, then your opponent is going to learn your strategy and, you're no longer effective right same thing with business and marketing and and so on so you know it's not really effective to be dominant in one side or the other but i think that the reason that we're so much demonizing uh dreams and the randomness of dreams and all this and saying it's just noise is because people don't really see our culture doesn't really see the utility in dream experiences while you're awake and I think that's attributed based on, um, what our culture really, you know, sees as important, you know, and really it's a negative because they're, they're hurting themselves. You know, you're, you're shooting your own foot in a way it just takes a long time for that to really come to fruition, you know, and you know, uh, coffee's a good example, right? i I was drinking a coffee before and coffee keeps you awake. Right. And it's one of the number one, um, drugs that we use today right it's it's a supplement it's a drug and people abuse the crap out of it and i do and you know pretty much everybody i know does and it affects your sleep it keeps you awake it's in opposition of it most of the drugs that we uh, we use today that are acceptable are actually in opposition to to have dreams right Mm -hmm. because they they keep you awake they keep you active so
0: yeah it's i find it kind of ironic in a sense because if you examine our world, you know, our waking world, we are surrounded by symbols. And I don't know how often people actually recognize that, the the the, the power of, because they do act on a very unconscious level. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, it's like every corporate logo is a symbol. Absolutely. So in a sense, you know, it's like, you know, we have our, I don't know how I want to say that we we have our dream symbols. And, and and this gets to a very old idea of the question of, you know, our dreams and sort of other realities, because it does seem like we are in a dream reality now, just with all of these symbols surrounding us, we just kind of fool ourselves into thinking that we're actually awake.
1: Yeah, um, there's, you know, there are a lot to be said there. Uh, For one, you know, like, I gave you, I gave the listeners and you like an example of a symbol, like you actually are a symbol to me. And so is everything that you ever experienced. Like uh, a lot of people would not agree with that, but it's like, well, point to something that doesn't represent something else, you know, like Mm -hmm. a tree represents something But if I really examine what the tree is, there's a lot more going on there than just the visual image that I see of a tree. And also like all my memories and associations with that tree and, you know, in my family and so on, right? And, you know, my genes and you could say to my relationship, my past memories as, as through genetics, right? Dealing with the tree. So it's like, there's a lot more going on with the tree than what I see. So I use the tree as a solid object the thing that i can know but it's a symbol it's much more in depth than that and you can apply that to everything that you experience in life even like words even thoughts in a sense are kind of they represent much more deeper things that have history and so on so um the world that we live in is symbolic it absolutely is so and symbols absolutely have meaning to them and to deny that is kind of I think that's a logical th- error in thinking and um and also like you know it, your question about modernism kind of looking at dreams as wasteful information it's like okay well if we say that then we can say the same thing about waking reality dreams are symbolic experiences right that are uh, essentially simulated in your head right and so waking reality is exactly the same thing it's i'm taking in information through my senses and i am putting that all in my mind and i'm hallucinating my experience it may be more real quote unquote than a dream experience because it's a physical experience that you and i share together but it's still symbolic and it's still error it's full of errors so what i'm hallucinating is it the same thing you're hallucinating like and we really can't determine how vastly different those things are either you know it's like uh tell me what the smell of a rose is or the color red like you can't it's impossible but we look at red you know look at the red rose and we go oh that's a red rose you know and it smells like a rose but like How do I know that your smell is the same as me or the color is the same? I have no way of knowing that, you know, I just assume, right? So it's the waking world is a lot more like a dream experience than we really think. And it takes a lot of energy from the mind to create this, this hallucination of the waking world, right? But it also does the same thing with dreams. It takes a credible amount of information and work and energy in order to create this, this, Dialogue, while you're asleep, you know you're you're hallucinating these experiences too. It's in your, your it's so complex, you know. And some of these dreams, you like you have repeating dreams. It's like the amount of energy that the mind took in order to create that story for you is outrageous. You know, no computer system today could do anything remotely close to that. So it's like, I think people that think that dreams are just random noise or they're denying the facts really, you know, mm-hmm. and yeah, I don't. It's I don't know how they came to that conclusion. Really, if they really cared and paid attention to uh, the evidence, you know, the studies, anything remotely close to that, they would realize pretty quickly that this idea that dreams are just random noise is it's beyond my understanding how they even got to that conclusion. So,
0: yeah, and I think that often people, what I find is that they claim that they don't dream whereas yeah. we know that everyone dreams they right. just may not remember their dreams yeah and when they do remember the dreams i think quite often the response is well that was weird yeah yeah when you were speaking it reminded me of this um experiment i did Um, I was probably in my late 20s, and this is when I was really kind of up to my eyebrows uh, reading uh, Carl Jung, and I I had this thought of what would it be like if I interpreted my quote-unquote waking life as a dream? What if I walked through almost like what if I experienced my everyday reality as a kind of lucid dream yeah and i had to stop (laughs) i i I could only do that i think i i think that lasted about a month and i had to stop um, (laughs) because it was just too much and i thought okay madness is just around the corner yes um but i wonder are we do you think that we might be missing something by not engaging in the world and our waking life because i think that you know you defined a lucid dream as correct me if i'm misremembering but it's a an awareness in a dream but you also note, i know in your book that one of the best ways to start lucid dreaming is to be aware in your life right yeah
1: exactly like um most techniques uh associated with tools to get you to have lucid dreams are essentially awareness training while you're awake. Mm. Um, And I started realizing that, you know, like most people, they just have, you know, they just have names and they go, well, this works, you know, like a reality check. Um, People look at their hands. They're like, oh, I'm doing a reality check. I do that multiple times a day. That's what it is, you know, Mm -hmm. but they don't really see why is this so effective, you know, and why do all these other reality checks that are so different than, looking at my hands why do they work too well and then why does meditation work or being present and aware why does that work you know and like um, buddhism and stuff like that and tibetan dream yoga it's like why do all these work you know well essentially what you're doing is you're being more aware while you're awake you know and you're saying i really care about these experiences i want to have those more and it's not like our brains are dumb you know they're going to go it's going to be like, okay, Lee's really interested in having these experiences and he's doing all these awareness training techniques. So I will engage with them. Right. There's a dialogue open. It's like, it's like having a relationship with a, you know, a wife or a husband or significant other. It's like, if you're not talking at all, then why would you have a conversation? You know, your your relationship will eventually just deteriorate into nothing. But if you say, hey, let's have a let's I'm really interested in the things you're interested in. Right. And I'm also interested in talking to you about those things. Then dialogue opens and now you have a relationship. So the same thing happens with their minds. And what you said about engaging the world as if it's a dream, I think that is what myth is. Right. Mythology is a way for humans in the past and. Uh, we kind of, it's kind of died, but in the past, a way to engage with the world as if it's dreamlike, because they realize that dream, that waking reality is a lot more like a dream than what we think it is today. And I, I've done that too. It's like, uh, I kind of mentioned that I think, you know, like, why am I interested in the things that I'm interested in? Why am I looking at the things that I'm looking at? You know, why is that? If I walk through a park, you know, and I see a tree, and I'm like, why suddenly, out of all the trees does this one stand out you know what does that mean to me and it's kind of like taking a passenger seat you know in the ride of life you're like okay maybe the experience that I'm having isn't my ego essentially directing me to these things because I seem to not really understand why I'm interested in things right and it's I think that's for the most part for people they have these passions throughout their entire life and they really get to the end and they're like, I don't know why I did that, you know? You know, if you if you flip it around and say, well, I really don't know why I'm doing these things and I want to know why, you know? I want to figure this out. Well, if you take a backseat or a passenger seat to this experience, you start realizing that the world in a way is talking back to you. We could say, you know, in psychological terms, it's like, okay, you're hallucinating the world inside your mind, right? And all the senses are coming in, you're having this experience. Well, the mind would be absolutely capable of changing slight things in order to express itself to you, just like a dream does, right? So, a dream, you could have a dream that's a normal experience. I have them all the time where it's like, you know, I'm just doing stuff that I may have done throughout the day. Well, sometimes there's little differences in those experiences too, you know, something will pop out and you're like, "Well, that that didn't happen, you know, in my waking life." That's weird and the weirdness that we express as weird is actually the key elements that those dream the dream uh, content is trying to express to you to pay attention to it's just like walking through the park and saying oh i'm suddenly interested in this tree you know it's like oh maybe there's some meaning to that maybe it, the problem is though is that most of us have lost the ability to communicate through symbolism which is the language of the unconscious so, if we don't know the language because it's forgotten, then we can't communicate easily. So, you know, those, those symbols are actually ways for and in uh, hopes that the unconscious will connect to us in some way and that we can engage with it again. So, I, I kind of, and then when dreams get really powerful, they get really, uh, f- there's a lot of emotion in it, either fear, love, hate, whatever, you can kind of, It's like a wake up call, you know, it's like if a family member was really pissed off at you and screaming at you, you probably would say something is wrong. You know, I need to talk to this person or do something so I don't continue to piss them off, you know? And so like that emotional engagement that the dream content is expressing to you is trying to tell you like there's something really important here. You need to pay attention. Most of us, though, like we don't really like to engage with uh, some of those emotions like fear, right? then we're like, I never want to go to bed again because that was absolutely terrifying. And I don't know what the hell that was. Right. And so it kind of scares us away. But I think really what is happening is it's, it's, a uh, it's almost like enticing you to engage with it. says so like, Hey, there's something really important here. I'm trying to tell you, but you're not listening. So let me amp this, amp this up a little bit more so you can really get the message, you know? So I think it, I think, engaging the world like that definitely starts breaking apart um the solidness of reality you start seeing for seeing it for what it really is you know and the in and in your experiment the mind is kind of playing a game with you you know it's like oh you you want to see how deep this rabbit hole gets <laughs> well we'll start showing you some stuff you're like whoa like this is too much man like it's like yeah exactly you don't want to know what is really happening here you know maybe yeah or you're not ready for it.
0: Yeah. I remember when I was going through this experiment that um, I was living in Denver at the time. And I remember I was in my living room and I um, had like the double door. There was like a little patio. I was on the first floor and I could just see right on in the sidewalk in the street. And I look out and there's like this Buddhist monk just walking by. And I was like, okay, so what would that mean to me, symbolically, um, at this time? And I and I love this notion that you're presenting of this sort of conversation, because the I, I don't know that symbolism is such a, a a complex thing, and I think that we often and I think this is the problem with like dream dictionaries Mm. where it's this idea that, oh, I had this, you know, this symbol of this, you know, Buddhist monk. So I'm going to look it up in this book and see exactly what this means. (laughs) But the, the symbols can change based on our experiences of these things. And so I think it is, your point of being engaged in this conversation of with them is incredibly important. Maybe this is a loaded question or a huge <laughs> question, but I'm going to go ahead and ask you anyway. Is this engagement with the symbols, both in dreams and especially in our waking life, is that synchronicity? Is that where synchronicity, the idea of synchronicity comes into play?
1: Yeah. So Jung was all about the synchronicities and synchronistic events. And so I really tried to understand that. I was like, what is synchronicity? You know, like, do I really believe in that? You know, like the world yeah. kind of aligning yeah. up to yeah, what is
0: the synchronicity,
1: right? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that's a, you know, I I'll define it for myself, I guess seemingly random events occurring in such a way that it seems almost predestined or it lines up perfectly to you know um that's a horrible definition but it lines up perfectly to other events you know like it's undeniably almost undeniably perfect experience you know it's like wow i can't believe that just happened like there's no way i could calculate the possibility of that happening and so at the time i was really Uh, exploring that and being like, well, what what is that? And I had such uh, synchronistic events happen to me that it was in a friend uh, that it was absolutely undeniable that those events can happen. So I I won't go into long detail about the story, but people can decide on their own, essentially. I think that's the important part is if they think synchronistic events happen or not. And the really interesting Thing that happened to me is that once I was opening myself up to possibly having those experiences, you know, I'll be like, okay, I'm gonna let a little little of this go and just have a fun time and see what happens, you know. And then it started happening, and I was like, okay. And I kind of actually took a break too because it became so bizarre and weird, I didn't know what to do with it, and I was like, this is this is just too much for me. I got I got a life, I got to live, but. You know, you could, again, talk about it in in psychological terms. Like, again, you know, we hallucinate the world inside our mind based on modern science, right? And so we don't really know how vastly different my experience is from yours. And so the world that I'm hallucinating, the dream or not the dream, the unconscious could change and modify in such a way that things line up perfectly, you know, and I'm experiencing something that maybe you're not experiencing, but it's so perfectly aligned in my psyche that it feels like it's the world talking back to me, the the greater world. I tend to personally, you know, there's no I don't know if there's evidence to support it. Maybe there is, but in my own personal experience, I'd say that that isn't accurate, that the world actually, the experience that we're having is actually much more dreamlike, What like we said before, in that the unconscious, what we call the unconscious, is a lot more in control of this experience than as a greater experience than we'd like to think, than I would like to think. So, so I do think that synchronicities do exist but then the question comes up okay so say that you had this seemingly random event and it was perfectly timed up you know like I I don't really have a good example but let's just say you know something happened that was perfect you know it was a synchronistic event and then you go well what took it what took uh, what had to be in place for this event to happen perfectly as it is well then you think about your past you're like Every moment, every second that brought me up to that point, you know, all the, all the red lights that I was pissed off at, you know, waiting for the next car to move or whatever. I'm like, I got to get home right now. I'll put the red lights in front of me. That red light, if it was a second or even a moment earlier, green light, the event wouldn't happen all the way to the start of this whole thing. You know, you call it the big bang if you want, right? All the way to that point. All those events had to line up exactly perfect for that moment to happen. If you apply modern science to it, right? That's that's just how it would have to happen. You know, there's other options. You know, it's like maybe the world, maybe time doesn't exist, and everything's more malleable than we really even remotely think of it. And that events can happen. You know, without any previous billiard ball experience. You know, to get you to the where you are to that that moment but you know so either way you know i think you're dealt a hand that's like really confusing at that point and so to me you know those big questions again it kind of goes back to modernity and like trying to prove things and put them in the boxes and say okay this is a synchronistic event but that other thing wasn't and trying to really just tally up things it's contrary to what's important the importance is that these experiences happen regardless if like so-called synchronistic or not, you experience them as that. What does that mean? And and really going back to trying to have that conversation again and again, you know, we have to kind of retrain ourselves to say, hey, s- stop trying to prove everything, stop trying to put everything in a little box, have a conversation, you know, like you did with the the Buddhist monk. You're like, what does that mean to me? Right. Like a scientist, be like, okay, I had this weird event happen to me. How many seconds did it take to get there? Colors were we wearing? How many times have I seen a Buddhist monk before? All this stuff, you know, you kind of just put that to the wayside. You said, what does this mean to me? Why am I experiencing this thing right now? And I think that's much more important than than really trying to prove it or anything like that, because it's it's not really meaningful. Like the conversations that we have right now may inspire somebody to look at things differently, but I'm not trying to prove anything to those people that's for them to figure out, you know, and really for them to decide what they think is true, what they don't think is true. So on, you know, I'm not going to convince anybody. So, but once they have those experiences, like you maybe had, and I definitely had, you know, it's like beyond a shadow of a doubt to me that those events do occur. I don't understand them, but the important thing for me is to say, well, what's this mean to me? I want to have a dialogue i want to have a conversation I'm, I'm over the proving thing yeah
0: yeah and yeah i agree with you i really wouldn't attempt to try to prove synchronicity but i think the key is in the meaning and the meaning right. is going to be subjective in many ways although i do though sometimes think that there are bigger synchronicities oh, yeah. um, uh, that are at play but it's always going to go back to even like a group, you know, kind of collectively saying, oh, yes, we see this as being synchronous, you know, because yeah. they're all sort of accepting the same premises and, you know, and experiences and whatnot. A couple of questions. I, I, I want to get to um, the unconscious uh, since you've brought that up several times. But first, I, I still want to kind of investigate a little bit the symbolism because you've suggested that our relationship to symbols is currently degraded in our culture. And I agree with that. One of the concerns I have is, you know, the symbolic world is such a rich world. And it is, as you pointed out, our the grounding, I think, for our creativity. But it often seems to me that all of this has been colonized, by mass media and the things. And it's like, if I have to see one more movie that tells the hero's journey, um, (laughs) uh, (laughs) you know, and, and I'm glad it's there, but it's like, I guess that we can have our own individual interpretations of some of these symbols that we're being presented with. Right. I've noticed that, and this used to be the case a lot back in my own personal history, but I used to have a recurring setting in some of my dreams. And it was this old dilapidated movie theater. And sometimes when I would be in the theater in the dream, there would be movies playing. And I, my interpretation of that was (laughs) these are the archetypes. This is archetypal imagery. And I would have these dreams of this theater for probably a good 10 or 15 years, probably closer to 10. Mm. Yeah. 10. And when I actually figured out what was going on and sort of resolved the issues that the dreams were telling me the very last dream I had, this theater had been completely refurbished Mm. and they were holding the Academy awards there. Oh, and the, uh, the host, I, re- I remember this, uh, it was uh, Steve Allen and, uh, and uh, Lily Tomlin. Um, and if you remember, they did a movie together, I think back in the 80s. Um, I, I think, I forget, All of Me or something, where she gets in his body. So it was like, for me, the union of the masculine mm. and feminine. Oh, wow, yeah. I don't really dream of that. I never dream of that theater again. I still sometimes dream of movie theaters, which I always see as, okay, here, this is something that's archetypal. But I do have images in my dreams of, you know, movies and characters from television and whatnot that I've seen. And I'm just kind of curious. It seems to me in many ways that our, capacity or our ability to create our own myths have in some ways been taken away from us Mm. just because of this proliferation of media right um uh, what what do you do you agree with that or yeah
1: no i agree with it i don't know if it's intentionally done or not i'm pretty uh i tend to think that i'm more on the side that it was intentionally done to remove the imagination of people to become better consumers and that the media and marketing has really the really good media, the really good marketing, right. That really takes people's imaginations away. does a really good job in using pretty, you know, I would call them universal symbols in order to drive people in order to buy their product or do whatever they want them to do. Uh, It doesn't necessarily have to be a, a, A visual image, either it could be a sound, it could be an emotional response from images, things like that. You know, so they marketing is essentially using symbols in order to manipulate people to do what you want them to do, you know, buy a product. Um, I was looking at like the head and shoulders logo, which is essentially an Ouroboros. um, Mm -hmm. And I didn't really, I never really noticed that. You know, I've used head and shoulders for years because my lovely dandruff problem. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But you know um so it's like oh I, I buy this product i look at the logo you know i don't really think much of it but why did they pick that logo you know of all things and the same thing goes with like nbc you know like the peacock with the mini feathers and the all-seeing eye i think uh, abc or i forget yeah, i get them mixed up yeah, yeah cbs, CBS. Yeah. and it's like um i looked up you know why they picked those things and they're like oh i just I just, they just picked it, you know, that's the explanation. It's like, no, not at all. Uh, These people that create those systems really understand what those symbols mean. I think even if it's not completely in their awareness, it could be unconscious again. And they chose those images to represent what they're essentially are doing. And so the peacock, you know, is associated with like alchemy too often, you know, and then obviously... The eye is a pretty, pretty popular image for you know people that are, conspiracy theorists and stuff like that. But it's definitely an alchemical image as well and Mason, uh, image. So, and it's all over the place in America too. So, and you know structures even in America, um, architect, architectural structures such as like the Capitol buildings and stuff like that. They, they have a round top and they have a square bottom and. Uh, that was intentionally done, you know, to symbolize heaven and earth united together. And most people don't really think of these things, right? They just, they see something and they go, oh, you know, it's, it's pretty, it's cool, mm-hmm. you know, whatever, but they don't really understand what, why they're getting those emotional responses from that. And people that understand symbols very well, I think they understand that some of these things are universal and they can use them to get, to drive things the way they want people to to drive, and in turn they can control their imaginations. You know they can control their emotional responses, and they can dictate them to be better consumers, workers, uh, less imaginative, so on. And it kind of drives the the progress of America and consumerism throughout the world, like those symbols do. So, in the universal symbols, I think every symbol, everything is universal in the sense that we that's how we recognize things. You know, it's universal to humans that we you know we see things and we have similar emotional responses to anything essentially but there's universal symbols for us and based on culture right so like um we can look at like a kkk guy with a hoodie on or whatever not a hoodie but the you know the pointed <laughs> hat and we're like that's that's obviously a racist dude you know and so we've been kind of taught to identify that as what what we think it is and pretty much anybody in the world can see that now and say, oh, okay, we know who that is, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's universal in a sense that it's cultural based, you know, and universal for humans, you know, but there's other like, uh, but I mean, all these things have grounding in something else too, you know, like symbols go down, they go down forever. So um, eventually you get to something that really represents. I tend to think that symbols are more than um, just these things that we call the imagination, too. I tend to think that the concept that symbols are alive, that they connect to actual consciousnesses, you could say, uh, I think that's more closer to the truth than just saying, oh, they're just images that we like. And the reason that we have emotional responses to these things is because the consciousnesses are actually affecting us in our physical being, you know. Uh, you could call the consciousness as you know your unconscious too. You know it resides in that area that we can't really see into. So,
0: yeah, it reminds me of uh, before recording this, we spoke briefly about uh, Jung's autobiography, uh, Memories, Dreams, and Reflections, and he or Anelia Jaffe uh, yeah. <laughs> records a, yeah, uh, <laughs> a a dream that he had, and it was actually I think the dream that really. The way it's presented in the book is what prompted him to think about this collective unconscious in the sense that the dream, he was going down different levels in this house. And so on one level, there is this sort of personal level. So this is like, you know, the house he grew up in. Right. And then he goes down a little bit further and the imagery is, you know, I don't remember I think something like from the Renaissance or something. And he's like, okay, well, this is more, you know, a few generations back. And, you know, so he keeps going down. And as he goes down, he's also going back into time until he gets to this like dirt floor and there's like bones there. And so I mentioned this because it just reminds, reminded me of what you were saying reminded me of this is that, with our symbols, it works the same way that, yeah, we have these personal symbols and then maybe, you know, like our societal symbols, you know, the culture that we're raised in, you know, and then it just kind of keeps going further and further and further. And I wonder with the use of symbols, you know, be it, you know, on the head and shoulders or CBS and the all seeing eye and everything like that, it seems like There is, you know, and I don't know if it's intentional or not, but they're tapping into this sort of collective unconscious to motivate people. Absolutely. Um, I also know that there's an argument that has been made. uh, There's a documentary, uh, The Century, The Self, Mm -hmm. um, that points out that, you know, modern public relations was created by Edward Bernays, who was the nephew of Sigmund Freud. <laughs> and he was actually utilizing Freud's theories, uh, especially this idea that, you know, the id that we want and we desire all the time to essentially create this modern consumer society. It, it seems, in a way, that it's almost this combination of both Freud and Jung. Although I, I think that Jung might suggest that. I don't think he would deny the uh, the Freudian aspects of all of this. I think it's really important, though, to be able to speak this language. And I personally find Jung far better uh, or far more useful, I should say. And you seem to rely quite a bit on Jung in... Uh, your book Um, I don't remember you mentioning Freud you might have but I remember Jung quite a bit and Jung's idea of the unconscious uh, you also uh, you have a chapter or two on the anima and the animus and uh, refer to the concept of individuation so we've been talking about this and both of us have been kind of throwing these terms around a little bit And I don't want to be unfair to you, but (laughs) and I know this is a huge question, but um, let's take a step back a little bit. And just for any listener who may not be familiar uh, with Jung and some of these ideas, can we break them down a little bit? Uh, Let's start with the unconscious. Yeah. Uh, Mention the unconscious. What in the (laughs) world is the unconscious?
1: Well, we could teach like uh, probably you know, a few week course on this one. Um, yeah. And really still probably not get to what Young was really talking about, I don't think. Um, but from my perspective, you know, the the unconscious essentially, um, a good analogy would be looking at the earth and looking at space. There's a, there's a point where the earth ends and space begins. And so gravity's lost, our atmosphere is lost. And now we're with something else right and there's all these other planets and stars and life forms out there and it goes on forever right and essentially that is the unconscious it's mm. it's going out your personal space your personal earth space and then you're you're now in the realm of all this other stuff that actually affects you you know like mm. the gravitational poles of the the sun obviously affect the earth because we would just fly off right we wouldn't have we wouldn't rotate around the sun on all the other planets and stars affect us maybe so slightly that we don't really recognize it being affecting us but it, it's affected us through you'd say our evolution right and how who we are and how we form and everything like that and they're all changing too you know at the same time so the unconscious is is essentially doing the same thing and universally we can look out and into the stars and we can see Saturn. We can see its rings and be like, that's Saturn. And, it, and, and throughout history, we've communicated with Saturn. We've used Saturn as an image in a lot of our uh, myths and cultures. And, and so it affects us and we can communicate to Saturn even if it supposedly doesn't communicate back to us, right? Uh, we can imagine it and stuff. So I think the unconscious is kind of in the same way that in that it there's something there that's trying to communicate back to us. But in the sense of like what I really think of it as, I think of it as another aspect of yourself too. That that you really has a lot more knowledge, I guess, uh, experience in it. It's a collective too. It can be collective in the sense that. Um, Jung believed that human, all humans, in a sense, were connected to each other in some way and could communicate, essentially, wireless networks, right? <laughs> um, and that there's a personal unconscious, too, where it's personal related to me, where I have, you know, experiences, and it stores it essentially like a local cloud memory almost, and then, you know, and it connects to the larger cloud, which is essentially the collective unconscious and then it expands even more into this like this undefined consciousness which is forever right and it concludes everything but that's kind of i think the most simple put way of saying like that's the unconscious so in symbols you know it, it communicates into in a different way like this we were talking about it it communicates through symbols and essentially everything symbols so it communicates to us <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know if that is that accurate to what you think, too. Or? Um,
0: yeah, it's um, uh, I think, you know, I, I don't want to get too lost in the weeds. And this can be other kind of conversations in regards to consciousness, because, you know, the unconscious is obviously that which is not conscious. But I think that consciousness is much bigger than our head's. And I think the unconscious, you know, is part of that. It, it reminds me of, a, I'm going to paraphrase, it's a, a Lon Milo Duquette, um, I think, has a statement. It may be a subtitle of a book of his that, yes, it's all in your head. You just have absolutely no idea how big your head is, right? Exactly. Um, um, so, yeah. So I think that, you know, the unconscious is personal, but also transpersonal.
1: Right. I would say that it's like, uh, you know, you, what you're conscious of is the things that you know, right. Mm -hmm. And what you're unconscious of are the things that you don't know, but you're still, it's still conscious. It's not a, it's not this thing that doesn't have the ability of awareness. It has awareness. Yeah. It just, uh, you just don't know it. You just don't remember it. (laughs) Right.
0: Right. Yeah. And one of the reasons I wanted to kind of get you sort of to this and to uh, explore this conversation a little bit more and I still want to kind of dig a little bit with uh, Jung but there seems to be this notion about lucid dreaming that it is about controlling your dreams Mm. yeah but I I get the sense that that's not quite the case it seems like there's something else at play
1: well so I've struggled with this question, too, and I struggled with it personally in my life because, you know, it's common for people to have lucid dream experiences to say, oh, well, I'm I am the God of this experience. You know, I can do whatever the hell I want to do and nobody can do anything about it. And I explored that to probably the nth degree, you know, and and was like, wow, look how powerful I am, you know, Um But then I started realizing that that wasn't really the case for myself in in the sense that dream characters started kind of responding negatively to my trying to control them. Mm -hmm. Um, They would answer questions that I'd ask them about, like, um, who's dreaming? You know, I'd be like, hey, are you dreaming right now? (laughs) And they'd be like, yeah, I'm dreaming. And some of them would say, no, I'm not. And I'd be like, well if you're dreaming, then, then what am I, you know? And they're like, you're a, you're a dream character. And I'd be like, well, I'm dreaming you, you know? And they're like, no, I'm dreaming you. And we get in like arguments over it, wow. you know? And, and then other dream characters essentially controlling me. And which is something that I would do to them, you know? And it'd be like, oh, I've had dream characters remove my memory you know they're like hmm. oh you think you're dreaming me so what i'll do is i'll just remove your remove your memory and i'll be like what and then suddenly i start forgetting things i'm like oh my god like what, do you, what what's going on here you know it turns into a nightmare pretty quick <laughs> and i got asked jungian communities aren't super passionate about lucid dreams because of that they think it's very dangerous to control the unconscious or even attempt to control it and so one of my classmates was like do you think you can abuse lucid dreams? And I was like, no. And they're like, they laughed at me and they're like, you don't think that? And I'm like, no, I don't think that at all because it's putting you in your place. People that think they can actually control their dreams have a logical error in their thinking Mm -hmm. because the dream, and, and this goes back to what I do know about Tibetan dream yoga, right? Is that Tibetan dream yoga, doesn't say that lucid dreaming is like special or anything like that they're actually trying to get past the dream itself into what i remember is called a white dream where nothing really exists just the the unity the undescribable experience that you can have in that right it's not something they can even describe really and so you know you look at that and you go well what are they talking about well dream worlds are generated around the character. It's like a movie and you're an actor in this play, right? The script's written, the scenes presented to you, all of the, the scenery's generated, everything is around you, even the memories that you have about what you're doing. So I, I mean, example of this, I've had dreams where I'm doing bizarre, weird things, right? And it seems totally normal to me. I even, I can reflect in the dream and be like, oh, of course, this makes sense because I have all these memories of me. Doing all these things that led me to this place, obviously this is real. There's no question of the validity to that that experience. Well, the memories themselves are, were fabricated in such a way that I thought that this was normal, right? So if that's possible, then so is the ability to become lucid in a dream can be fabricated. So me thinking, oh, I have awareness in my dream, I can control things. That very well is possibly an illusion by itself it's actually a false memory provided by the dream to say now lee's lucid and he can control stuff and this is going to be another dream lesson (laughs) (laughs) now now i'm an interactive character in the dream actually kind of playing the part of the character not even knowing i'm playing the part of the character so there's a lot of debate i think in lucid dream research today um, at least with the people that i talk to where they go yeah, we don't really even know if you can be fully lucid in a dream because there's always a, a narr- I call it the narrator. The narrator is always three steps ahead of you generating the world around you. Uh good analogy is like a video game. Anywhere you look in a video game, the world is generated by the graphics card, you know, the graphics mm-hmm. com- the par- computer is generating the world around you and you're the character running around it. When you're not looking at the direction of the wherever you're facing, the world isn't there. It doesn't exist. But anywhere you look, it's already generated. The story's already generated. You're just a character running around in the story, you know. And if it's a really good advanced computer game, it would always generate content in front of you to direct you to do whatever it wanted you to do. So you would really have no choice in the story. You're always acting out whatever the the programmer or the the narrator wanted you to do, right? So in a sense, you know, I think dreams are similar in the sense that you can't escape the world that you're in that's generated around you, the memories, the content, the emotional, everything is always generated in front of you. So even the control idea, there's no such thing as abuse because it's always, it's allowing you to see, think that you're abusing it, you know? Mm and the lesson in there is essentially for me it's a lesson of control and what really control is if you think that you're totally in control of your life even remotely really in control of your life in waking reality you're you're going to be sadly mistaken when when it suddenly goes out of control you know you're like how did this happen to me how could it how could this happen when i was in such control well the reality of this the situation is you were never in control you had the illusion of control until it, finally broke down and you saw past the veil you know so the dream is is exactly the same so anybody that says oh i can control my dreams i'm like wow dude that's cool and but then and if they like if somebody says oh we're these people are just abusing their dream characters and they're abusing their minds like i don't think you understand how big the mind really is and how powerful the mind is you know and what really is happening here so yeah just I think the control thing is an illusion you know essentially but you know i encourage people to have lucid dreams obviously because i wrote a book about it but in my uh my desire is that people will eventually get past that that lesson of control and they'll start releasing their control over to the dream and try to build dialogue you know if i'm having a conversation with you And I'm constantly just waiting for my turn to talk. We're not having much of a conversation. I'm actually trying to control the conversation and destroys the conversation completely. So by releasing control over to you and saying, okay, what do you have to say now? Then we can have a dialogue. And that's really what I think dreams are trying to get to. And myth is that myth is a, is a dialogue. It's not a, it's not a one-way story.
0: Yeah. And what was it that, um, I think Joseph Campbell said that myth is the public dream and dream is the private myth, uh, something like that. I I, I don't remember that saying, but that's really good. I'm going to remember that one. Yeah, I forget where where he said that, but I I know he did. Uh, So you mentioned the the narrator. Do you have any idea who or what this narrator is?
1: (laughs) No, I don't. (laughs) Um, You know, and maybe it's not just one. I mean, I definitely seem to have dreams that are... Uh, in contradiction of each other. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really um I didn't really see dreams as having a positive and negative effect mm-hmm. to them uh until more recently. I was listening to an interview by I forget the author's name, but he wrote the chicken kabbalah
0: Oh yeah, cat. Yeah. Yeah.
1: He's an interesting dude, but he he got asked the questions about dreams too. And he said it was about some negative dreams. And he's like, well, you can have ego-based dreams. And I was like, ego-based dreams? That's not something Jung would say, right? And essentially what he was saying is like, essentially, you know, in uh, occultism and stuff, they, they believe in a higher self and pretty much you're trying to progress to the point that you can kind of reunite with that thing. Mm-hmm. And that's essentially individualization too, right? Mm-hmm. Is the reuniting with the higher self or the self. And so, but ego, you know, can be in the way of that. The, according to the chicken Kabbalah guy. And you can have ego based dreams where it's trying to deter you from trying to progress in a, in a direction. And so, you know, anybody that really believes that dreams are all progressive would see this ego based dream and be like, oh, it's progressive. It's actually trying to help me out. Well, according to this guy, you know, it's turned around and it actually is trying to lead you astray so that you don't continue to progress. And so it's a it's a tricky thing there, you know, and it, would, it makes sense that dreams would have a positive side and a negative side to them because all things do. And if you had a conversation with two mentors, right, you may call them both mentors, but one may try to control you and lead you astray and try to be, you know, with them the whole for the rest of your life, you know and now you're in a cult, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, but another mentor may try to be like, Hey man, you know, here's some ways I did some things and you may want to follow this to progress, to be a better person or whatever you want to call it. So I don't see why dreams wouldn't do the same thing. Mm -hmm. So that's why it's like really important to have dialogue and not like put things in little boxes, you know, Mm -hmm. because you need to really fill these things out and say, well, what, what, what am I trying to learn here? You know, what's, what's trying to teach me and why, you know, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. where, where am I going with this? So, I mean, I've, there are cases where people have had lucid dreams and they end up um, murdering people in real and waking reality because mm-hmm. of their dreams. So yeah. it's not a, you know, it's not a, it, it's definitely not just whatever, butterflies and rainbows, you know, mm-hmm. it, it can, you can have some negative effects from all this stuff. And I've been really challenged by, some dreams too you know Mm -hmm. like i'm like what was that where did that come from what does that mean and you know some really horrific stuff that i never really even thought was inside me but then you know i had these dreams and i'm like wow okay you know i'm a monster really when it comes down to it and i'm i'm really lucky that i don't express these things sometimes and and i need to i need to really be aware of that because the more i'm aware of how much of a monster i am the The better human being I can be. And dreams have shown me that. But I think many people may take those experiences and say, I never, I don't wanna, I don't wanna see that ever again. And, you know, some cases I think of PTSD and stuff like that, they're around that realm.
0: Well, you know, we are all monsters, (laughs) I think. Yeah. And, you know, and I, and this is another Jungian concept of the shadow. Right, And I know that it's so important to address the shadow from a Jungian perspective for personal growth. I also think that it's important to recognize the shadow collectively. And I think that we have a really bad tendency, especially in this country, to not recognize our own shadow projection. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, you know, I was, <laughs> I, I thought about this. You know, I mean, it's, it's obvious now, in terms of how like the political parties, you know, oh, are yes. pressing each other, and even with the, you know, the last president, I, I, my approach was, this is shadow. Oh yeah. You know, this oh, is all yeah. shadow projection. <laughs> and to, to say, you know, well, this is all evil. It's like, we need to look at our own negative yeah. traits, you know? I think that dream work is a very beneficial way to do shadow work, mm-hmm. uh, to work with the shadow. And um, I would like to ask you if you could maybe expand upon that a little bit. Sure.
1: Uh, yeah, most people don't really... I mean, a lot of people don't really dive into any of these questions, so maybe I should right. stop saying most people. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for whatever reason, I dive into these questions, uh, and it makes myself mad, But so I'll do that for people. But I went to a school, you know, I, I, you said Pacifica, so I'll say um, Pacifica, and the people there, you know, they, they study these things. They study shadow, they study archetypes, they study all this stuff, right? and but then i'm sitting in class and i'm listening to how they talked about trump mm-hmm. and, and i'm not a supporter of trump really i i treat him as a human being i think mm-hmm. and with all human beings you know there's there're definitely flaws on all of us and i really can't judge i try really hard not to judge other people before i judge myself on those same things you know put myself in their perspective live their life and then i say well what would i act like you know and i'd probably act very closely to how that person acts, you know, in all cases, even murder people and things like that, you know. So so it's really hard for me to judge other people. But in the same sense, you know, if you understand the shadow, then you understand projection, right? And and so the shadow is essentially like the cumulative dislikes of your being, right? You're like, I don't like how I look, you know, I look fat. And then it goes into this drawer called the shadow, right? And it's essentially a consciousness that exists. That is everything that is negative about yourself. That's what Jung kind of would sum it up as. I think it's a lot more complicated than that, but that's a quick summary. And what we do though is we project onto things, onto people, those aspects of ourselves to kind of play them out. We're again acting as if we're in a in a play, right? We're playing, and the person will accept that too. So there's like a lock and key mechanism that's associated with this projection. So if we're projecting things that we don't like onto somebody, the person can reject it or they can accept it. And if they accept it, then we, our hatred towards that person sticks to them. And it seems like we actually have this hate relationship with them. And they actually, unknowing to themselves maybe, accept that, that hatred. And they're, they're actually acting as like a soundboard for your hatred so you can actually kind of work it out on that person. Same thing with love and all the other emotions that we feel. So, you know, and people would say, well, well, how is that possible? Well, it goes back to essentially everything that you've ever experienced is inside your mind, right? And so if if you dislike somebody, the only way that you can actually relate to that person is by having those things that you dislike about that person already inside yourself in some aspect. That's the only way that you can relate to even the hatred that you feel towards that person. So if you dislike Trump so much, you know, then it's a great mirror to turn around and say, well, why? <laughs> what are those things I dislike about him that's actually inside myself? You know, I think that's a much more progressive way than saying, I hate that person, I don't know why, you know, or here's all the reasons I hate them and and just continually doing that, you know. But To each their own, you know, everyone's playing their own game, I guess, with themselves. So that's their game. But, you know, in shadow work, in lucid dreams, essentially, it gets complicated because Jung never really, uh, he never acknowledged really the metaphysical aspects of dreams or uh, reality. And he really kind of discredited the cult uh, aspects of those things, too. So like Rudolf Steiner, he... Um, he wrote about this thing called the Guardian of the Threshold. And if you listen to, if you read about the Guardian of the Threshold, it's very shadow-like. It's it's an object that keeps you in the veil away from the greater reality. And it kind of stops you from entering there until you're ready to face it. And essentially it's kind of a fearful thing, right? And it's also described very shadow-like too. And so, you know, there's that aspect of it. In dreams, you can dread, or I have dredged up, you know, shadow like stuff with nightmare like figures in my dream and tried to communicate to them. So, an instance of this that's in my book is me interacting with a zombie. And so, in the dream, uh, well, a little backstory I was continually having lucid dream experiences and out of body experiences, which or lucid dreams in my house and um i was very proud of myself because i would go and attack these dream characters that were nightmarish and beat the hell out of them right and i was like yeah i'm so cool you know i'm powerful and at the time i was luckily taking a class on buddhism uh from a teacher who's still my friend today and he's one of the type of people i'll just tell you like straight up if you're kind of messing up you know And so I was like, really proud of my ability to to beat these characters up. And, and I wanted to tell him, you know, I was like, yeah, I have these cool experiences. Nobody else does. And I'm special, you know, look at me. So I went up to him. I was like, yeah, you know, like I told him about my experiences what I was doing. And he's just like, looks at me like I'm crazy. And he's like, well, why would you attack these things? You know, like they're part of you. Why don't you sit down and have a conversation with them instead? And I was like, what you know he just totally blew my mind so i was like all right you know let's try it so i knew that i was going to probably have a lucid dream that night so or that morning i the next morning i guess cuz i was taking naps and that's when i was having them and so i i had a dream i got out of my body i walked down the hall and i turned around and sure enough there's this zombie creature walking to, towards me and i was like okay you know i i want to have a conversation with this thing so I knew it wanted my brains because that's the type of zombie that I always, I always have. And so I, I bowed my head down to it and it, I could feel the crunch of the zombie eating my brains, you know, I was just like, and I just didn't react and it stopped. It was complete silence. And I looked up and the zombie, you know, wasn't doing anything. It was just standing there. And I was like, Hey, let's, let's sit down and have a conversation, you know? And it, it was like, okay. And it sat down It didn't say anything. It just sat down with me. And I looked at it, and and I, uh, I can't remember correctly if it like turned into me at that moment, but essentially it turned into a copy of me. It the zombie design or whatever, went away, and it was it was me. And I was like, oh wow. And I'm like, well, wh- what's bothering you? You know? And it said, I'm unsatisfied. And I'm like, well, what are you unsatisfied about? And it said, I'm unsatisfied. And I was like, okay. And then I looked down the hallway, and I see another zombie walking up to it to us and I'm like hey sit down with us you know and so it sits down and it it pulled wires out from its stomach and so did the other one and then they connected it to each other like exchanged the wires and then they merged into each other and then they merged into me and I immediately woke up and I was like what the hell is that you know and I I still don't really understand what that was all about but you know there's it, a lot of symbolism in there like the the merging the trinity merging together creating one things like that and these other fragmented aspects of myself you know coming together but it also is zombie you know it's like very symbolic in the sense that essentially it's an unsatisfied being that that has a desire to eat flesh and it has no like real nutrients or anything from that it just it's dead and it just desires more and more and more and that's kind of like our culture essentially and a lot of us feel that way and i i do feel that way in a lot of senses you know it's like i'm constantly struggling with the desire for more to feel something that is unfillable and you know i'm just like i need it i need it i need it and it's never i know it's never going to satisfy me you know but i think there's in a zombie there's no awareness of what they're doing either they have no self-reflection and they're just doing these things so and zombies are a very powerful symbol even today you know we make tv shows about them some of the most popular ones have zombies in them. So it's like, okay, these are very powerful symbols, you know? But, so that was a very shadow-like work, I'd say. And I said that I didn't understand the mechanism behind that, like what happened with these merging and all that. But I can say that when I woke up, I felt changed, you know? Something slightly inside me had changed and I couldn't put a word on it. And that's kind of like the gnosis, you know, that you that people find in like ancient texts is like essentially you you know something you have knowledge of something but you can't like really define it you know and it's beyond kind of this this material definition and young says the same thing he said that dream. you know you don't have to sit there and analyze every single dream down to its finest detail because because you had the dream that is enough it's doing what it's supposed to be doing so you know and it comes back to like that always brings me back to being like well what am i doing you know like i'm having lucid dreams i remember i'm trying to remember my dreams you know i'm trying to recall these things but if i don't do any of that then it's still doing what it's supposed to be doing right and in a sense yes but also our drives and desires to do certain things are also part of that story you know like our drives and desires are unconscious for the most part you know we don't really have conscious awareness of why we're doing things But we're doing it for a reason so when you're trying to experience these things you're trying to engage more with your dreams that's part of the the process you know what process that it brings to i don't know you know i'm still in this process myself you know but i can tell you that i'm so thankful that i've had these experiences because i can see the world in such a different way than i did before and i find much more beauty and in full life in waking reality now that I've had these experiences. I, I feel like the world is so much more alive than it was before. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. You know, that's one aspect of shadow work that yeah. I've encountered. Another aspect of shadow work that is really common through people that explore lucid dreams is actually a seemingly very real physical manifestation of the shadow as an object that you actually have to encounter. And that crosses into like the metaphysical aspects of what the cultists essentially are getting to like um, you know the ethosophy I I never say it right but Rudolf Steiner's work you know Mm -hmm. he's essentially saying like you can really encounter these things Jung would say you can never actually encounter an archetype they're always Mm -hmm. way out there you encounter the emotional power of those things but you can Mm -hmm. never really encounter them Mm -hmm. and I disagree In the sense that cross-culturally, as well as my own personal experience, I've encountered things exactly, almost exactly how Rudolf Steiner described these things as essentially the guardian of the threshold. Mm -hmm. And and it's not uncommon for people that explore lucid dreams to have those encounters through sleep paralysis Mm -hmm. and uh, those experiences. And it's something that people should be cognitive of because the encounter can be very traumatic um, if you don't know what it is. And also it can be very healing if you approach it, I think, in a, in a, in a different way, you know? So in my book, I really dive deep into that my personal encounter so that people can relate to it. And they can say, if it happens to them, you know, they can say, well, this is what we did. Maybe, maybe I'll be okay. You know?
0: Yeah, it's, um, you, you know, you, you mentioned the, the, the sleep paralysis in the hypnagogic state. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember in the book, you said that they can be a portal. And I think maybe that's kind of what you're getting at is that, you, you know, the sleep paralysis seems to be some kind, you know, it's in that same spectrum as lucid dreams. Mm-hmm. Is that fair to say? Yeah. I haven't had a lucid dream for like 20 years, but I do frequently have these, uh, the sleep paralysis experience. Mm. I'm trying to get to the point where I can work with them a little bit. Um, because what I always find is just that the fear is what kind of shocks me out of it Mm. because, you know, there's immediately that moment of, oh my God, I can't move. I need out of this. Right. Um, yes, yes. But I think what you wrote in your book is like, well, you know, you can get beyond that. And I think that's a really powerful statement because what that's suggesting is, and I, I think that is part of the shadow work is that, you know, if you just breathe for a moment, <laughs> yeah. you can actually work with what's going on. Yes. Um,
1: yeah. It's not to say that it's not super uncomfortable and also very traumatic. It can be incredibly... Horrific for a lot of people. Uh, I've had friends that have had sleep paralysis experiences where they're essentially raped. You know, mm-hmm. and that's not uh, something that anybody really wants to be told they can work through. And I've also had that happen to me in sleep paralysis. the The feeling of that happening, mm-hmm. and there's some reasons behind that. That if you go into like um if you go into Hinduism and stuff like that in uh, qigong and stuff you can eventually find reasons why somebody may have that feeling and but uh the the main thing i've learned from sleep paralysis is that you know it's important to understand what the experience is and that you're having it and and by doing so then you can kind of take a breath you know it it's it can be so scary though and it's really hard to do that and that's like an art form, you know. Um, but if you aren't constantly just reacting something, you can kind of step back and, and say, you know, this is just a dream experience, and it'll it'll go away. Um, one thing that I really re- realized with sleep paralysis is kind of to relax and not try to fight it, because the body's normal mechanisms is trying to put you to sleep. It's trying to make it so that you're actually paralyzed, you can't move. And that you're dreaming and that you're not conscious when that happens and so it's actually trying to push you into that sleep and really you're you're kind of in between you know those states if you take it as analogy of like a space shuttle leaving the atmosphere it's very violent you know when the space shuttle is or whatever we use now you know not space shuttles i guess anymore but mm-hmm. is leaving the atmosphere you know you see the the movie screens and the people are shaking you know like uncontrollably and and then suddenly there's this super release right where gravity doesn't affect them anymore and the atmosphere is not hurting them or anything you know and also when they re-enter too you know like they hit the they hit the veil of the atmosphere and there's just shaking uncontrollably and then and then they're in the earth and it's like oh okay it's peaceful now you know Mm -hmm. the same thing happens when we enter sleep paralysis the vibrations can be so intense that it feels like you're soul is essentially being ripped from your body you know you can encounter things that are dramatically beating the crap out of you you know and and so but if you relax enough and you allow yourself to get pushed through that veil things will become quiet and and, and calm not to say that every time it works you know sometimes through experimentation right when we're trying to lead the atmosphere sometimes we don't have the right angle and we're stuck in this cycle of hitting the atmosphere and just getting beat up and then eventually come back down. Uh, same thing happens with sleep paralysis. Sometimes I'm stuck in the in-between and I'm just sitting there violently shaking, you know, and I'm like, okay, when's this going to end? You know, like this is annoying, but you know, through practice, I think in learning how to deal with that, we can eventually use it as a technique to actually have these, very interesting healing experiences sleep paralysis has been healing to me too you know yeah just like you said working through that fear working through that control because uh you know people that resist sleep paralysis essentially don't want to have the experience happen to them anymore so they're trying to resist it and trying to control it so that they don't have it but oddly enough once you release control nine out of ten times you know you're 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 fine a good example in a movie is like contact, right? They build the dome, the little circle thing, right? As the aliens told them. And they they put a chair in there though. And they they put a chair in there for her safety, right? They wanted to control the, the experience. They didn't think that the, the aliens knew enough, right? They're like, we're going to put this, the, the aliens didn't know who we were. So we're going to put this chair in there to really help her out. And then she's in there and she's shaking uncontrollably, right? Just like, ah, it's like horrible, And she finally is like, she sees her necklace floating up, right? And then she's like, oh, and she gets out of there and the chair breaks off, hits the wall, and she's like free floating in in space and everything's perfectly fine. It's kind of the same thing. Once we release this mechanism of control, things actually can relax and finally process through us, you know?
0: I find that the sleep paralysis experience, I mean, my experience of it has been... A little bit different from what I can remember from the last time I had any kind of lucid dream, because when I became aware that I was dreaming within a dream, it still had a dreamlike quality to it. Whereas when I have the sleep paralysis, (laughs) it feels real. Um, It doesn't feel like I'm in a dream. It feels like I am in my ordinary waking reality. Oh, yeah. Um, Well, um, that's where like out of body
1: experiences come about, right? mm. Where the experience seems more real, even than reality it's so hyper-realistic that you cannot determine the difference between being asleep and being awake. So I've had sleep paralysis where I, I can't move, right. The typical paralysis and I see things or whatever, and they, and I'm pretty sure that I'm awake, you know, Mm -hmm. and obviously I don't have weird random ghosts walking through my house or creepy alien looking things. Right. So my wife didn't see those things, but you know, I think it's, it's, real you know and my wife doesn't see me like sitting there vibrating in bed like (laughs) you know like a train's going by or something so i'm you know i'm in that in between state now if you relax enough and even sometimes you know um after a while i i stopped getting sleep paralysis i would just kind of lay in my bed long enough and suddenly i'm i'm like okay you know like am i asleep i don't know And so I get up out of my bed and I start doing jumping jacks in hopes that I don't wake my wife up and look like a crazy person, you know, and I I start doing jumping jacks and suddenly I'm floating in the air, you know, Mm. and I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm dreaming, but I literally have no idea that I'm dreaming. Like it's so realistic. I cannot Mm -hmm. tell the difference. I mean, um, going to the bathroom and flipping my light switch on and off as fast as I possibly can. And it does exactly what it's supposed to do. And then um, something happens and I realize I'm actually still in a dream. You know, some some other error happens. I'm like, oh my gosh, I've been dreaming this whole time. I used to think that I was sleepwalking through my um, apartment that I was renting. I had roommates and I talked to them in my dreams, but I thought I was sleepwalking. And I'd be like, you know and I, I i talk really slow i can't like make any sense and they're just like what are you talking about you know like and and then i'd wake up and i go talk to them i'd be like hey you know sorry about that weird conversation we had and they're like what are you talking about like i was like <laughs> what and they're like you didn't talk to me you know I'm like oh oh i was streaming that was weird but it yeah. seems so real you know and the people yeah. act exactly how they're supposed to act everything's so realistic you just like i can't tell the difference is very uh telling of waking reality too right Mm yeah um yeah i know i know I remember you saying something about shamanism Mm -hmm. um and relations to dreams and spirituality and stuff too and that kind of comes in contact with sleep paralysis uh, Mm -hmm. a lot as well as like experiences people have in there so we can talk about that if you'd like yeah
0: because one of the the questions I originally had for you. And I decided I wasn't going to ask it, but um, uh, well, and, and I decided not to ask it because I kind of answered my own question, oh, Okay. Um, but uh, I'll, I'll say this as best as I can. So the, the original question was, can you have a lucid dream when you're awake? And what prompted that question was, an experience I had, I took a, a weekend workshop with Michael Harner, uh, who uh, did the Way of the Shaman. And this was in downtown San Francisco, it was in a hotel and there were, I don't remember about a hundred of us or so, and it was over a weekend, you know, not the best place to learn how to do a shamanic <laughs> journey, right? And so we're in like the conference, not even a conference room, but like a ballroom or something. And they actually had the drummers in there. And I had no luck at all the very first day in Mm -hmm. achieving any kind of sort of shamanic experience. The second day, we were paired up with someone. We actually did several journeys throughout this thing. And so I was paired up with, I ended up working with this woman who I had never met before in my life. And we were supposed to do a journey uh, to answer whatever kind of question they may have. And her question that she wanted answered was, am I on the right career path or should I change careers? You know, something like that. So, you know, everyone lies down and they dim the lights and the drummers start. And at first it was just this sort of daydreamy, you know, kind of nonsense circle stuff. And that's what I had experienced throughout this. And, you know, annoyance of people sitting in chairs and creaking the chairs, but it was, fascinating to me because I was fully, you know, I was aware I was, you know, I wouldn't say that I was asleep at all, but all of a sudden I had what was almost like a dream experience. It was like, I woke up into a dream, Mm. if that makes sense. And I was standing in this, like I was looking down there was a, I saw immediately this horse hoof come down in front of me. And I look up and I'm standing in this field and there are these wild horses running by. And then as soon as I see this, the drumming change, you get the callback is what they call it. And, you know, you're supposed to follow your track pack and everything. And then so after this experience, you had to get with the person and share your experience with them to see if you answered their question. And so I met with this woman and I was telling her all the daydreamy stuff. And I could tell just by the look on her face, she was having nothing to do with it. <laughs> and so I then said, okay, and I should have started with this. And I don't know why I did it. I'm like, okay, well, there was this thing at the end. And I explained the horse hoof and seeing the horses. And she just looked at me and she said, thank you. You answered my question. Um, and apparently she had been uh, working, uh, she worked on rehabilitating wild horses. And she had been thinking of leaving and uh, or pursuing something else and this was her sign like no, you're supposed to work with the horses. Yeah. And so the experience for me, and I've never been able to achieve that again. And I think part of it is kind of like lucid dreaming. It's something you have to work at, you have to practice. And the more you do it, the better you get at it, perhaps. But it was interesting to me because, like I said, it was almost like waking up into a dream. Mm-hmm. And I saw a parallel between that and this lucid dreaming experience of becoming aware within the dream. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so uh, Jung would talk about his active imagination mm-hmm. techniques. So essentially pulling the dream content into waking reality and working with it as though it's like a real, essentially you're creating a tulpa or an imaginary Uh, figure that or friend or whatever you know um, you're bringing dream content out you're actively working with the imagination amplifying it to be as real as it possibly can to the point that it starts communicating back to you as a waking hallucination almost right Mm -hmm. and i think that's cool and all but you know it's like well what what's really happening here you know and so you know what is imagination what is that i tend to think that the imagination isn't something that's um, just in your, what we think as just fake, right? It's Mm -hmm. fake. Um, I tend to to use the scientific method and apply it to that. And I say, well, you know, if if science is real, right, then everything comes from something else. So the imagination has the result of something as well. And so the content in there has to be something as well. And so how it interacts with, and also like sleep and wakingness and consciousness, right? Being consciously awake and stuff like that is very malleable as well, right? People can have daydreams, they can have, um, you know, hallucinations, waking hallucinations, all these different things. And it's like, well, what's going on there? What I think is that these realms, right? The, the dream world, if you want to call it the unconscious realm and the waking realm are very thin and there's a small barrier keeping this show together right and it like you were saying we're like one step away from being completely insane you know it doesn't take much it really doesn't if anybody's ever used like any hallucinogens or entheogens or whatever you want to call them it takes very little for a person to go from completely stone cold material scientist to being completely unrational, you know, stripping naked and running through the streets, right? So you having that type of experience, I don't think it really takes much. Um, Some people, you know, have a weaker ego, right, than other people. And they're very, some of people are young, young have this idea of ego not being really a bad thing, right, that we tend to think today. It was, uh, you can have many different kinds of ego, right? You can have a malleable ego, you can have like a really hard ego, and then you can have like a semi-permeable ego, right? And in every phase in between, and essentially the ego is what keeps this sense of reality together. So when you start making it so that things can enter the ego, well, it's entering your version of reality to make it something that you typically wouldn't experience um the same thing with the too hard of an ego too it's like some people don't allow anything from the outside world enter their their version of reality they are very solid right but with those people unfortunately when something is so massively has such a massive amount of energy behind it it forces them to it forces into them right their ego and essentially shatters their complete worldview and they may fall apart and never be put back together. And they have psychotic breaks, right? But anybody that kind of works through these processes of like drumming, meditation, all these things, they're essentially making it so their ego is a little bit more malleable so that things can enter into them that typically aren't. In that sense, you know, everybody really is a in my eyes, kind of a shaman, right? Some people are gifted. To be that way some people are trained that way you know shaman is a very loaded term too it's like i'm i'm a i'm a shaman you know it's like yeah. well now you're just trying to put a label on something right and you know all the training and everything that's associated with that it's like okay but essentially every human being has magical abilities right mm-hmm. of the of having the imagination enter into their ego and change their worldview. Or get information that exists uh, outside of what they know, right? And I would explain your situation very remotely close to the same thing. Essentially, you got the information from somewhere, and it could be unconscious, right? You could you could have picked it up uh, exactly. from her or whatever. You could explain it away in that sense. Um, it doesn't matter. What does matter is you experienced it, right? And mm-hmm. and that's what happened. So. Um, you know, in my eyes, you would be at that moment a shaman, right? (laughs) And then then now you're not, you know, it's like, okay. Um, And you were healing the person too, you know, oddly Mm. enough. Another way explaining is like, she somehow actually has the malleable ego and she used you as a, as a way to, Mm. you know, give her the information that she really needed or something. And
0: maybe that's why you haven't had it since, you know, or something. I don't know. It's hard to know yeah yeah i i mean for me i i really based it on the the that i just haven't been consistent in practicing with it but But is there
1: something there's something to be said about that too it's like
0: what she she said something
1: very interesting you know she said at least from what you you said about it is Mm -hmm. she said am i supposed to be in this job you know yeah and it's like once if people turned that around and said, why am I in this job? Yeah. What am I learning from this job? Mm -hmm. That that's why I'm on this journey. You know, like Mm -hmm. I can change it. You know, I, I could change it if I really wanted to, but let me first see what's happening here before I go on to something else, you know, or teach their own. But I, more and more in my personal life, I found that for whatever reason, I'm asking those questions more instead of saying, I, I'm in this deadbeat job, I just want to leave, you know? It's like, well, why am I in this deadbeat job? What mm-hmm. led me here and where is it going, you know? Yeah, yeah. Maybe there's something here that I'm missing.
0: Yeah, I think that's really important. And I think this gets into working with the shadow in many ways. It's like, you know, if you are in a job or something that you hate, it seems like there's a part of you that wants it. And instead of asking, you know, well, how in the heck can I get out of this, which is a valid question, but to also ask, why am I still here? Right. You know, what am I to learn from this? You know, what is it that I'm getting out of this? You know, because right. maybe there's a part of me that just gets off on being exploited or having a horrible boss or <laughs> you know, something yeah. like that.
1: But it's interesting we use words, you know, like that. You know, if somebody's really having a shitty time in their life. They're like, why is this happening to me? You know, know. it's like, why are you using those words? Obviously, deep down inside, we identify some type of external force that's actually acting these things out. Mm -hmm. And like, and we're part of that. It goes back to like, I think, you know, it's it's kind of based in the reason of multi lives, you know, reincarnation, things like that, and kind of choosing this life before you experience it, you know, and that's easy to say when you're having a freaking good time, you know, you're like, I'm a millionaire, and like, life's great, you know, but it's like, when you're poor and broke, and like, everybody around you is dying that you love, it's like, holy shit, this sucks, you know, and it's like, why is this happening to me, you know, and it's really hard to turn around and say, what am I to learn from this experience, you know, like, this is, if this is planned, then this experience sucks, you know? But like, really, how can I embrace that and like move on into my further growth, you know? And some people that have done that, we, we've we identified them as being some of the most powerful people on the planet, you know? They're like, yeah. you've had such great suffering, but how did you overcome that? And they're like, you know, I accepted it as my life, you know? I mm-hmm. accepted it as something I'm supposed to learn from and and moved on from that, so it's hard, for, hard to do, you know, easy to say. Yeah.
0: Well, I, I think that I, I like the connection with the, the shamanic in a number of ways, but in particular, it seems to me, and, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe this is, you know, from having, you know, listened and read too much Terrence McKenna when I was younger, <laughs> but There does seem to be this sort of reawakening to these things. And I think the, the power of looking at at lucid dreaming is that it gets us thinking about the spectrum of consciousness, because, you know, like you said, you know, it's not just conscious, unconscious, that there are degrees or different kinds of phases to it. And it seems like we've lost the ability in many ways to explore them. And I think it's to our detriment as a species and as individuals. And that's where I personally see the power in promoting and encouraging lucid dreaming because it allows us to tap into this sort of shamanic aspect that we've kind of lost as a culture and can help us all heal and not just individually, but collectively.
1: Yeah. I mean, I mean, I wrote my book because I, I thought that I was given a lot of mentorship from other people. I worked really hard to overcome some of my problems or at least to identify them and try to work on them. And my goal was to hope help other people not have to suffer as much and find maybe a path that would benefit them in creating their own personal myth and really um, looking at dreams as something that can inspire them and heal them and not just something just to throw away when you wake up and it can influence their waking life and change how they see the waking reality and how they interact with people it's very you know, psychedelic in that sense, you know, we today, um, psychedelics are easier because you can quantify it easier, right? Not so much the experience you can quantify, like the mechanics between taking something, you know? So it's like, Ooh, this is a shiny tool that we can use to do this. Right. But, uh, you know, again, it's kind of a bridge between the dream and the, the waking world too. It's kind of Jungian, right? That sense. But, um, Dreams are, you know, they're natural, they're always there, and they can really do, I think, even a better job than taking something external and, and changing your consciousness that way. And I think it more and more, you know, will be as a culture in the world will be led back to um, a desire to reconnect with the symbolic uh, meaning of the world. You know, like things never stay the same very long. And Uh, powers you know that are in charge they get to a peak and then they lose their control right and eventually it'll wane wax and wane back to be the other way so I'd, i'd imagine sometime if humans live long enough we'll be in a world that's totally different a completely symbolic world where everything is symbols and we we have that language and we have no concept of like real rational thought anymore and and then and we'll forget this all, you know, like, we'll look back in the past and be like, uh, we, we have no idea the history or anything of these people that used to be here that were this way. And then it'll do the same thing again. And some, some point there'll be a middle ground, right? And that's kind of where I'm leading in my life, you know, in a, in a uh, microcosm, right? Me, I've gone through a lot of these waxing wanings myself. And many people do all the time, you know, where it's like, I'm a I'm an extremist scientist and now I'm extremist uh, mysticist or whatever, you know, and this keeps going on and on. And it's like, okay, if the pattern exists individually, it exists as a larger group too. So, so I, I think that the future is not necessarily good or bad, but it will definitely lead us back to symbolic knowledge. And I think that's where people are getting closer to in this breakdown of fact and, Things like that, they're they're looking for something. They're saying, "Well, nothing's real," you know. They're essentially desiring to go completely the opposite direction, where the, nothing's real, you know. All logic aside, right? Mm-hmm. But there's definitely a middle ground there, and it, it's some things are real. Maybe one thing's real, and the rest is unreal, you know. Yeah. But essentially, you know, I think it's leading us back to really recognizing consciousness supreme consciousness that we're part of you know and i call that god so um everyone has different names for that but that's why i call it
0: yeah yeah absolutely and i think that that's that's the key is that there is something uh beyond all of us whatever we call it um whether it be god or some transcendent self and i know some people just like to use the generic you know universe or creative source of the universe or something like that
1: those are all symbolic terms
0: describing the exact same thing yeah for sure yeah and we just get into fights about the clothes it wears (laughs) again you know
1: there's that scientific mindset of trying to put it in the box it's funny you know it's like you have these communities that essentially they're like we don't put anything in a box you know but then you're like you mentioned hebrew uh, symbolism or christianity symbolism or even you know sometimes buddhist symbolism or and on and on you know depending on what community you're talking to and they're like no 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 no. And yeah. it's like you guys are doing the exact same thing that you hate it's like it's symbols man you know like yeah. Yeah. they just they just don't understand symbols yeah so i would encourage you know that's one thing i really do encourage people first to read my book <laughs> and also after reading the book to really spend time on un- trying to understand symbols and your relationship to them, because that will lead you back to total knowledge. I think complete knowledge is in those things. So, understanding that language will lead you back to things you possibly could never imagine. I think I'm still impressed daily what symbols have done to me. So and are doing. Yes.
0: Well, I, I would um, <laughs> second the. Um... Statement that people should read your book. (laughs) Um, And it's available on Amazon and uh, bookshop too, I think. Yeah, it's pretty much everywhere. They can go to uh,
1: luciddreambook.com. And that's pretty much my, it takes you to taleleaders.com. So it's easier to learn and remember uh, luciddreambook.com. And then on like middle of the page, you can uh, buy it through Amazon. You can get a signed copy f- from me if you'd like. Uh, it's a little bit more expensive because I include other things with than just the book in there, which I think is really cool and important for people. It's a symbol, uh, symbolic uh, medallion that I made for that community. And um, it's my way of saying thanks for supporting me a little bit too. And then they can go to the publisher and buy it too for, for through inner traditions. Um, if people don't have money and they really wanna get this content, then, I ask them that they email me directly and I would be glad to hook them up. So I th- I'm not trying to make money off this book. I'm trying to make my money back essentially that I put into it uh, if possible, but that may take me a long time. And, um, but I'm really, my real passion is to help people learn about this and get the message out that, you know, dreams are really important and that some people that may have some of these really sometimes horrific, terrifying experiences they're not alone and there's other people that can help them and that they can do, they can work through those things and really improve, I think. And it's such a sad state, you know, where people wake up and they just just discredit their entire nighttime experience, you know, and it's such deep knowledge that you can learn from it. And so hopefully my work will bring people back to that. So yeah,
0: and we sleep what a third of our lives. Yeah, yeah. and Some so more so than others. That, yeah, and and so much of that is dreaming and not paying attention is like just disregarding this huge chunk of your life. Yeah. You know? So I mean, there's
1: something said about the people that deny um, the knowledge that can be in dreams, you know, and that's a journey on themselves, you know their their perspective of reality perspective of the imagination, what really imagination means to them. And I think that's really sad. It's a really sad state. Um, You know, I think imagination is much more powerful than we really attribute to it and that it should be recognized for what it is. Now, I don't know if it's intentionally done or not. Uh, That's up for debate, but it seems to be possibly that way. So um, real freedom is in the imagination, I think, and how you use it. You know, that's the real freedom. So, yeah,
0: I, I, I like that very much. So, uh, how can, uh, we've got the website lucidreambook.com and I'll include that in the, um, uh, show notes. Uh, how else can, uh, people find out about you and your work?
1: Um, well, tailators.com is probably the best way. So there's free guides on there on how to get lucid, you know, working with sleep paralysis, things like that. There's tons of free information on there. There's information on psychedelic shamanism memory pretty much anything related to consciousness that um i personally explored and then other people have guest posted on there and wrote some really good articles on a very wide range of topics so they can go there and there's facebook groups that you can join through there Uh, there there's a discord group that you can chat with other people uh, the Discord's not so active, but the Facebook group is pretty active. There's like 700 people in there, and a lot of those people are actually more skilled at lucid dreaming than me, even. So they're actively practicing, and some of them are naturally capable of having, you know, lucid dreams every night. So, you know, they can answer a lot of your questions if you have it on uh, experiences that you've had and things like that. I'm more interested in like kind of the symbolic nature of dreams and like working with them in that way instead of you know, trying to determine if they're real or not. Um, but there's some people in there that are very interested in determining if dreams are real quote unquote real or not, you know? And so you can go there and talk to them about that and they be able to definitely open your mind to some different ideas. So that's probably the best way. And then they can contact me through the website. Um, and they can fill out a contact form there and they can get a hold of me that way. And I respond pretty much daily through that. So, um, yeah, there's
0: plenty of ways to get a hold of me. So. <laughs> okay. Wonderful. I truly enjoyed this conversation and thank you again so much for yeah, your thanks, time and yeah. for speaking with me. I, I truly appreciate it.
1: Thank you for having me with you, man.
0: And that's a wrap on episode three of rebel spirit radio. I wanted to offer a correction on something I said when I referenced the 1984 movie, all of me, I said, it starred Lily Tomlin and Steve Allen. I have no idea why I said that. It was Steve Martin, not Steve Allen. All apologies to Mr. Martin. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to give it a positive review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever service you use to listen to podcasts. Your reviews really do help. And please consider subscribing. For those viewing on YouTube, please give this video a thumbs up and subscribe to the channel make sure you hit that notification bell so you will be kept in the know regarding upcoming episodes. For the time being, I'll be releasing episodes every other week, with the goal of releasing them every week in the near future. Also, please consider making a one-time donation via PayPal or join as a sustaining donor via Patreon with three levels of membership available. Details can be found at patreon.com forward slash rebelspirit. Your support makes this podcast possible. I'm Nick Mather, and you've been listening to Rebel Spirit Radio. Until next time, may you be in peace and flourish in all possible ways.